The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Oh, if this ain't a sleepy Friday, I don't know what the hell is. Good gravy. I'm going to kick myself awake today. Uh, I want to apologize. We had some technical difficulties on yesterday's show with Josh Millman, where we got all the right words into the description of the show, but then for some reason it was playing Monday's episode. So I went back through and sorted out some of the issues. I made, I re-edited the whole thing, re-uploaded the file. Hopefully that should be fixed now, but seems like it's it's conceivable that many of you are going to get to listen or I guess I choose my my verb carefully here either you're going to get to listen to two shows back to back or you have to listen to two shows back to back depending on uh, how how you actually feel about the podcast but apologies again apologies to Josh Millman for delaying the release on that episode because of the uh, technological snafu I hope you guys do end up enjoying that one I had a lot of fun doing it and it was just a blast to talk to Josh, and really to talk to a person, because human contact right now is limited, and when you're jammed into a place with a wife, toddler, and newborn, there's um, not a lot of words uttered between adults that aren't pretty consistently interrupted by the screams of a child, uh, whether that child is yelling at you to do something, or one that just cries, because uh, that's all it knows how to do. So anyway... Apologies on that once again. Hope you guys enjoy that Thursday episode. This is Friday. This is your, uh, effectively your weekend edition of Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am Dan Bespris at D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. Um, by the way, if you guys, again, have written in to ask about the open sales positions here at Hoop Ball, I have written back to you. So if you're wondering where is it, uh, it's done. So maybe you didn't get an alert. But uh, make sure you get back out in touch with me. I don't want this thing to just sit, be sitting out there for a while. Those of you that are considering doing it, I tend to reply pretty quickly to stuff. So again, bug me on Twitter at Dan Vespers or email teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. I know many of you are in sort of a weird in-between right now, whether your jobs have you working from home at weird hours, whether you've been furloughed, where you've been laid off, whatever it might be. Uh, we got something for you guys to do. Opportunity to kind of get started on the sales side of sports media, it's part of the process. It's a way to basically ensure that you are never uh, relying exclusively on the the moment-to-moment, the 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 article-to-article, the show-to-show, whatever it happens to be. So uh, bug me on that. It should be um, an interesting. It should be an interesting experience for for many of you guys. And if you have sales experience, all the better. Fantastic opportunity to make a pivot into the world of sports. A little bit of news on the NBA front. Obviously, everything NBA-related is also COVID-related, but the NBA officially postponed the draft lottery and the combine indefinitely, which is sort of the non-news of the day. We knew these things weren't going to be happening. They don't want to rush them, and they're just going to keep working on ways to get things going again. We have no additional information on that front, and I don't think we will anytime super soon. My hope is that we get some kind of information as the bigger, more cautious states in the nation start to open things back up again. We've heard little rumblings that uh, New Jersey is is starting to think about what they can do 
California uh, had to shut down some beaches, which I guess is moving in the wrong direction. But at the same time, California has also sent away the, um, I believe it's the USMS Mercy, the, the giant hospital ship that was brought out to the West Coast with basically the note, we don't need it. So that's actually really good news. California's cases are, are low. I say they're plummeting, but they're low. And so I think you're going to start to see these little bits and pieces. I don't know when it's going to be. It might be next week. It might be the week after. It might be the week after that. But we're going to start to see little itty-bitty pieces of good news mixed in with all the blech that we've had for so damn long. And, and please don't try to sell me on some of these states opening up too early as good news. I, I'm talking about places that have been cautious and those those places taking positive steps, that's something that has to reflect uh, in an optimistic way on on all of us. So uh, hang in there, everybody. We're we're hopefully taking little tiny steps forward, and you might hear something. I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I know NASCAR is coming back here in the not too distant future. Sounds like golf might be about a month away. Tennis, I know they're trying to figure out a way to get that going for, on, a, on a professional level. Honestly, I would love to go play golf completely by myself. I'd be happy to. I'll stand 300 and... Well, I don't hit the ball that far. I'll stand 200 and something yards away from the nearest person. I got no issue with that. That's the maximum social distance just to get outside and, and go do something. I'm guessing golf course is probably going to be pretty crowded if and when they open back up where I'm at. But um, anyway, that's where we sit on this thing. So again, to wrap up kind of this intro, apologies once again about yesterday. Big thank you, as always, to Josh Millman. And uh, we'll roll into today's podcast. This is your Friday weekend edition. We will pivot back into the team-by-team breakdowns that we had going on uh, most of the time, although we found some other stuff to talk about here lately, which is, frankly, kind of nice and giving us a little reprieve from the team-by-team, talking to Josh yesterday about his draft results of a mock draft, also uh, one of his lessons learned from a season gone by, just a kind of a, a, a bigger-than-one-season lesson from Josh. We'll have our Monday episode next week where we'll break down episodes five and six of The Last Dance. We'll talk about one of my my third lesson of the year. I've come up with five, so uh, we'll, we'll run that in conjunction. And then on Tuesday of next week, we'll, we'll move back into teams again. Now, because things have gotten a little bit disorganized on the team-by-team breakdown front, I will remind you all we are in Team 17 today out of 30. We did the Magic on Wednesday, the Grizzlies on Tuesday. So this will be just our third team of the week. And today we are looking at one of my least favorite fantasy teams from this most recent season. Yes, you guys know where I'm going if we're sticking in the Southeast Division. It's the Charlotte Hornets. And I almost called them the Charlotte Bobcats because that was what it was like this year. There were many times, many times this season, you might recall that I said, I don't know if we get to the end of this year, if this Charlotte team is going to have anybody inside the top 100 on a per-game basis. Now, at the time of the league suspension, they did have two, Devontae Graham and Terry Rozier, who, to Devontae's credit, he had actually been a little bit warmer lately, but barely. He was shooting 40% instead of 38 and Rozier has been, well, frankly, eerily consistent throughout this season, like frightfully consistent at around that top 80, top 75 mark. No one else on the Hornets was inside the top 150 this season, making them among the worst fantasy teams in the NBA. Among, I don't think I'd say the worst, because again, you did have two very viable fantasy 
players all season long, albeit uh, each one with some limitations, one of them a much more obvious limitation than the other one. But the third highest ranked Charlotte Hornet player this year was P.J. Washington at number 159, who you may also recall got off to a quick start. So it was actually generally worse than that for P.J. after a hot start to the year, trending down. The only other brief positive story from a fantasy aspect on this team was Malik Monk, who had a stretch where he was scoring about 20 points per game and then was suspended indefinitely for violating NBA drug protocol, which again, as was pointed out to me, and I, 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 admittedly, I'm not the expert on how this punishment shakes out, but it was pointed out to me that the indefinite tag is generally reserved for drugs of abuse and not drugs of performance enhancement, because we saw with John Collins and DeAndre Ayton, PEDs netted them a 25-game suspension. Um, I don't think marijuana falls into this category, so we're left to sort of deductively assume that Malik Monk was dealing with something more serious. So all we can really say on his front is, please, you know, send all the best out there. We hope he gets better from whatever's going on in his life. But that knocked him way down the charts as well. There were very brief stretches this year where Miles Bridges was posting fantasy value, and those evaporated generally about as fast as they occurred. We saw Caleb and Cody Martin playing more down the stretch, and when I say down the stretch, of course, I mean towards this not-so-thrilling conclusion, and uh, Caleb Martin actually was rolling along at about a top 100 clip for the last eight or nine games of his season, largely due to what I would venture to guess are somewhat unsustainable percentages to go along with kind of a low-usage auxiliary role. Going forward on this team is where we're going to focus most of our attention because oftentimes when you look at a team that has bad fantasy assets, teams are, you know, us, rosterers, general managers, owners, whatever you want to call us in the fantasy world, we have an inclination to write off those teams going forward. I don't want, you know, in the, in the vein of, oh, this guy was a pain in my butt. I don't want anything to do with him going forward. When in fact, guys like that should draw extra scrutiny, even if it results in a bad decision. Even I'm not a bad decision, I should say. But even if it results in you sticking with your original game plan of leave them alone, sometimes digging in deeper, turning on the microscope a little harder, reveals something more positive. So let's go through the Charlotte Hornets. We'll work our way from top to bottom, and we'll see where things lay out for this team. Terry Rozier, by a nose, I mean, this was a photo finish, finished in front of Devontae Graham. He was ranked number 76 in nine category leagues. Far fewer turnovers than I expected this year from Rozier. I I thought he'd be up around three at least. Everything else was not that far off. A little bit lower usage than expected, at 15 shots a game, 18 points, almost three three-pointers, four and a half rebounds, four assists, a steal, and a strong free throw number. That was one of his more uh, positive attributes from someone that was, uh, frankly, a bit overdrafted because he was going to this place where I think folks figured he was going to get uh, a ton of run, a ton of usage, and very few people competing with him for it. He was drafted... Uh, generally in the late 60s to early 70s. By averages, he was just behind that. By totals, he was actually out in front because both he and Devontae Graham were relatively durable during this 2019-2020 NBA campaign. 
What do we expect from Terry Rozier going forward? Overall, I think you can you can chalk up this year as something of a relative success because on the the merits of him not disappointing and also not being a real success, which I know sounds kind of funny, but you guys know how I operate. When guys hit their ADP or get real close to it, I'm usually pretty satisfied with that. You want guys that hit. You want those guys that you draft at 60 and turn out to be in the 30s or 40s. You want those guys you take in the 80s and they turn out to be in the 50s. They can't all work that way. But if you take a guy in the in the early 70s, call him a late 6th, early 7th round pick, you're generally counting on that guy to be a contributor for your team throughout the season, and, and Rozier was. I was definitely not a Terry Rozier fan going into this season. I advised everyone listening to this podcast to pretty much just hang away. I figured his field goal percent would be, combined with turnovers, would be too big of a detriment. Now, the field goal percent was not great, 42%. Arguably a tiny bit better, actually, than I thought it might be. The turnovers were, as mentioned a moment ago, far lower than I expected coming into this season. So... Give Terry a lot of credit. He overperformed my own expectations, even if he basically got right up behind his ADP on a per-game basis. So against the world, he was kind of a meh, or ever so slightly behind the mark on a per-game. Against my own predictions, he was actually better. He was a win in that department. He was also very consistent which was helpful for teams. He didn't go through long stretches of hot or cold play. He was pretty much just this guy from day one to day whatever the hell we got to. I mean, he, you know, he had these games every once in a while where he blew up. Last game before the league ended, he scored 40. But pretty much he was like, I'm going to put up 14 to 24 points every single night. I'm going to give you uh, anywhere from three to seven assists pretty much every single night. I'm going to hit my free throws. I'm going to knock down some three balls. And uh, and you know what you're going to get. I don't see much of a reason for that to change with Rozier going forward either. The makeup of his team doesn't seem to be set to to diverge strongly in any one direction. The only thing we, we question is, you know, what are the roles per, perhaps of a Caleb Martin and a Cody Martin next year when the team is more healthy? Uh, what, what do we think is going to happen with every veteran player on this team does that impact shots for the other guys or I mean these guys weren't taking that many shots anyway so does that actually just sort of fall to other peripheral players and the stars are kind of where they're at right now in looking at the roster and in looking at guys that took some shots Malik Monk is sort of your only, oh, this guy was taking nine to, well, once he started to heat up, 12, 13, 14 shots a game or more, and then he was eliminated. But we already saw how the team played when he was off the board. And it didn't change much. It was actually more shots generally for Miles Bridges than anyone else saw a a difference. Terry Rozier took 15 shots a game basically since Malik Monk went down. He took 15 shots a game for the entire season. There's just no divergence there. Same thing with Devontae Graham. P.J. Washington, Miles Bridges, they pretty much took Malik Munt's shots with a couple getting you know, a half shot here and there to a bunch of guys that, that folks really had never heard of before. 
And so that sort of, to me, lumps Rozier and Graham into a similar bucket where Devontae Graham, who finished at number 77 and was arguably the waiver wire pickup of the year, and I'm going to beat myself up about this for eternity because I saw that first game of the season and I remember how good he looked in an ultra-brief role last year when Kemba Walker missed like the second half of a ball game and another durable season, and I thought, oh, this is intriguing, and I wanted to wait for him to do it twice, and that was waiting too long. It, one of those things at the beginning of the year, you really you have to make your moves, you have to make them decisively and quickly, while at the same time remaining patient with the right guys on your own team. That's the hard part at the beginning of the year. But anyway, this is not the Dan Vesper's gripe session. This is Devontae Graham, who averaged 18 points, three and a half three-pointers, three rebounds, seven and a half assists, a steal, a uh, decent free throw shooter at 82%, three turnovers a game. That's where I thought Rozier's numbers would be. And then a brutal, among the league worst, weighted field goal mark of 15.3 shots a game at 38.2%. Now, that's a really easy thing to pick on. But when you find a guy with a really easy thing to pick on, it leads you in two separate but connected directions. Direction number one is, is this something that my fantasy team can stomach if I, if I had Devontae Graham on it? Right? Because you need, you need critically powerful field goal percent guys to cancel out what he's done. You need a John Collins. You need a Hassan Whiteside. You need Giannis. You need Ben Simmons. You need one of those guys, Capella, Gobert, Rashawn Holmes, Jonas Valanciunas. You need someone like that on your team to counterbalance Devontae Graham. It's really hard to do it with a smattering of other guys. You can put some guys together to cover up Devontae Graham, but inevitably, you're going to have someone else on your team that's not a great field goal percent guy. And so suddenly now, you're using a lot of roster spots specifically to kind of paint over uh, an issue that one player is creating for your team. The other part of this discussion that is inextricably linked to that first question is, couldn't he get better? Couldn't this young player who was, I don't want to say thrust into this much larger role this year. He took it. He took that much larger role this year. But couldn't a player like that, who's in his second season and, you know, was an older guy already when he got into the league. He's already 25 years old. So you're thinking, okay, what is the growth curve for Devontae Graham going to look like? Even though he's already a little bit older, don't you have to think that as he finds his way against the league as a whole he can get a little bit better. Dude took nine three-pointers a game. 60% of his shots this year were from downtown. He shot 37.3%. The other 40% of his shots from two-point land, he didn't shoot that much better from two than he did from three. That's something that could easily improve. Even if his three-point percent doesn't change that much, he can shoot better from two. Maybe think about getting closer to the bucket. Maybe eliminate the two-pointers altogether. I don't care what it is that happens. Dude went for 18 and 7.5 and with over three threes a game and a steal. And the only thing keeping him from being a top 50 guy or better was that unbearable field goal percent. And I mean, it was really tough to handle. 
you turn off, you punt, you punt field goal percent, Devontae Graham was number 37 this year. That's not me saying you should be punting field goal percent. I'm just saying if you turn that stat off and you make him a league average field goal percent guy, which this year was somewhere in the 47% range, so he ain't getting up to that mark, but just for argument's sake, he goes from 77 to 37. That's with no other changes. Of course, there would be other changes. If you took everything else and kept it static and increased his field goal percent from 38 to 41 this year, you turn his scoring up, you turn his three-pointers up in addition to the field goal percent. They have to go together unless you brought his field goal attempts down because if he's making 3% more of however many shots he took over this entire season, which we can look this up, he took 963 shots this year and made 368 of them. You add another 3% to that, you add another roughly 27, it was 963, all right, so it's more than that. It's more like uh, 30. It's another 30 buckets, at least 60 points. Some of those would likely be three-pointers, as we mentioned. Probably more like an extra 35 to 40 points. Feels small. Isn't. Isn't small. You're almost adding another point a game. You're probably adding another point one or point two three pointers. These are little things that go a long way. Right away, you turn him from top 77 to probably around top 50. And as much as I detest young players on my fantasy teams, third-year guys, I don't. Now, the question becomes, before we move into more of the peripheral guys on this team, because I do think there's some stories there as well, the key question with Devontae Graham, in addition to can he get better, is how many people think that's going to happen because that's going to lead to his ADP. This is where I'm nervous. This is where a guy like Devontae Graham has his value blown up because I don't think we're alone in saying this is a guy that had a breakout season and had one painfully bad percentage statistic, one category that crushed him. I think everybody's going to look at that top 77 rank see the 18 and almost eight assists a game, and think, I mean, this guy could be a number two point guard on my team. So he probably gets drafted in front of where he ended up this year. Again, finished at 77 on a per-game basis, played in 63 games, so by totals he was at 57. Wouldn't be surprised, actually, if he was drafted in the 50s this coming year. And for me you're getting pretty close to wiping out his value at that point. I can't imagine his field goal percent gets much higher than about 41 next year. If he can make that kind of leap, I would consider that a a pretty big success. And to me, that moves him from, again, on a per-game basis, per game, 77 closer to 50. 77 to probably about 55. So if you're drafting him at 57, there isn't a whole lot of room above that. Unless you're considering the notion of, okay, well, I want someone who we think is going to play in most of the games. I mean, there's just no way to know. You know, it doesn't like, it's not like he has this massive track record of being ultra healthy. This is the first time he's had to play starters minutes for a season and he happened to do it. Just missing two games, I believe. 
So I really like Devontae Graham going forward, but I, I fear I'm not alone. And for that reason, I'm not quite as excited as I would be about someone, say, that maybe was having a season like Devontae Graham, but had a lower assist or a lower point output, maybe a category that flies under the radar a little bit more. These are these are absolutely the two least under the radar. These are the over the radar categories in fantasy sports. Points and assists. Everybody's trying to draft those categories. Everybody's trying to get those guys. So are we willing to make that that leap, actually go out and get them and spend what it's going to take to get there? I, I'm thinking... Uh, probably not. But I don't know, because in that mock draft we did, I was able to get Devontae Graham right around where he finished this year, and I've got to think that, again, given the fact that totals do matter, and there is a possibility for slight improvement, maybe that carries over. Maybe. There's a lot of time for people to think about it between now and then, and for websites to adjust their pre-ranks, and he was not that high up on the list uh, which makes me think that they hadn't really adjusted it yet, and so perhaps I was just catching a little bit of a break. Let's talk about the peripheral guys on this team and whether or not they actually have any chance at value going forward, and we'll start with the best of the the funky bunch, P.J. Washington, who finished once again at number 159 this year, 12.2 points, 5.4 rebounds, 2.1 assists, just under a steal, just under a block, uh, one and a half three pointers. So not that far off from being a one one and one guy, which that is inarguably the good news on the PJ Washington front that he has the upside to be a one one and one dude. The downside, of course, is that uh, he can't shoot from pretty much anywhere. Forty five and a half percent from the field is a net negative. Sixty five percent from the free throw line is a net negative. He's taking 10 shots a game. That's turning into only 12 points, which you'd like to see a little bit more on the efficiency scale from someone who was logging plenty of minutes at power forward this season. That would come with a better set of percentages. Uh, And then rebounding. No one on this team was rebounding at, at a particularly high clip. So, meh. Meh. Now, can this be something going forward? Because he's a young fella. This was his rookie season. Uh, he's 21. He'll be 22 in August. So he's not a particularly old guy. There is room for improvement. Most likely to be sort of rounded out as a basketball player. I would assume percentages do improve. Because sometimes you talk about big men as, as the young big men of the league or the guys that might have an opportunity to maybe steal some value because maybe percentages could carry over. They could get closer looks to the bucket his looks weren't that close he took four three-pointers out of his 10 shots a game uh and shot 37 and a half percent from downtown so that was fine uh but it just makes you think that maybe the game was running a little bit too fast for him he logged 30 minutes a game this year which i i can't imagine that goes up all that much next season even if his role does increase on this team perhaps he takes a little bit more aggressive approach over the entire year We saw him take more shots over the last couple of weeks this season. It didn't translate to more value because his percentages were low and his defensive stats were low during that stretch. It begs the question of what he's really going to be moving forward. And frankly, he's a guy that I would almost, I would very quickly put into my bucket of, would I take him in my last round of a fantasy draft and just see because he's playing a lot of minutes even with a bad fantasy game? The answer is yes. Because what if something clicks in the offseason? What if his percentages both improve in a meaningful way? 
it's very easy to go from number 160 to number 90 because everybody's so bunched together. And if he wipes out one or two potentially of his worst categories, that's a quick way to do that. Do I see other stuff making a big leap forward? No, probably not. He's not a particularly high usage guy. He's he's taking the fourth highest number of shots on the team, which makes him someone that's going to struggle to score a truckload of points. Unless his rebounding improves dramatically, which it's a possibility. It's not out of not of the realm of possibility. It, it, that's another area where maybe you could see an improvement. But I don't know about a jump the likes of which it would take to, to get me to take a shot on him anything earlier than the end of a draft. Because I just don't see upside beyond top 90-ish. What about Miles Bridges, who played in all 65 games this year? That's the good news. Bad news is it just never clicked. He was remarkably inconsistent this year. He had stretches where he was playing really strong basketball. He had stretches where he was playing truly atrocious basketball. And if you could catch him on those two weeks where he was getting out there and getting aggressive, great. If you couldn't, you're screwed. Like, you could look at the stretch between January 28th and about uh, the All-Star break, roughly. He was playing really well. And then it just frittered away. And before that, there were stretches. He had about a a two-week stretch in the middle of December where he was playing well. And then outside of that, it frittered away. The blocks and steals were nowhere near what folks were hoping for when they drafted him. He was at .6 steals, .8 blocks. I think the hope was that he would get at least one in one of those categories. Uh, sorry, that was for the... the um, no, that that's correct. That's for the full season. Uh, 42.5% from the field. That's not good at all for a forward. It's not good for anybody. It's particularly bad for a forward. 13 points, 5.5 rebounds. He, he's another guy where, you know, you the first thing you look at with players that you're hoping will take that step is, can they wipe out some of the kind of choke points of their value, which is, can his field goal percent make a marked jump forward? We don't have a conclusive answer to that, but he was at 46.5% his rookie year, increased his volume a bunch this season, increased his three-pointers by percentages, not by that much, still taking about a third of his shots from downtown, a little bit less, or excuse me, a little bit more than that. And his three-point percent didn't change all that much. It's just that his steals and block rate went down. And his field goal percent went way down. So there's a world where he bounces back from that. There's a world where maybe he takes a step forward and, and increases his aggressiveness. And that's where maybe he gets a little bit of a draft day edge over someone like a P.J. Washington. Because certainly... If you're looking at which of those two guys has a slightly clearer path, it's Bridges. He can already hit his free throws. He was the third highest usage guy on the team this year at 11.6 shots, and after Malik Monk went down, he was closer to about 13.5 shots a game. If he's in that 13.5 range, and by the way, he was only shooting about 39% during those last 20 games of the year for himself— If that 39% gets out of Devontae Graham neighborhood and into the 45, 46, 47% where you need a forward to be, then he's easily a top 100 guy. Because in addition to, as we talked about a moment ago, in addition to the increase in the, the field goal percent and wiping out his worst statistical category, you add points, you add threes, you add confidence, you might even add other stuff when a guy's just enjoying his life a little bit more. 
And, and this maybe is the, the final point to tie in a lot of this stuff, Bismack Biombo finally comes off the books, so you wonder, what does that do to the rebounding on the team? Not as though he was playing giant minutes, Bismack only averaged 19 a game this year, but we know Cody Zeller can't stay healthy, even if he's the best rebounder in the bunch, aside from maybe Willie Hernan Gomez, but he can't play any defense, so do we think he's actually going to get a shot anywhere during his career at any point for more than 17, 18, 19 minutes a game? There may be opportunity here for the Hornets to go extraordinarily small, and thus, even if you're not playing Bridges at the five or Washington at the five or whoever you're, you're taught, whatever forward you want to play as your center, even if it's someone else, I honestly don't know who, but even if it's someone else, uh, you increase the rebounding opportunity for some of the guys that weren't going to get them before. Because think of it from this perspective. Willie Hernan Gomez... Bismack Biombo, Cody Zeller, only played center minutes this year. I think outside of maybe like a handful, counting on one hand kind of stuff. Those guys combined, and they didn't play in every game together, but generally, if you put the centers together, combined for about 12 and a half, 13 rebounds a game. Some of those would trickle down to the power forward and the small forward if you're just playing fewer traditional centers. And I don't know that this is what they're going to do, but it's part of the thought process as you look at ways some of these ugly, disastrous fantasy guys might be able to turn a little bit of a corner. By the way, worth pointing out, over the last 20 games this year, the Hornets didn't have anybody inside the top 100 on a nine-category basis. Devontae Graham was at number 103. Rozier 114, and uh, you work down the list from there. So a lot of guys on this team need to take a step forward to get where we need them to be, which means, and by the way, a note on Cody Zeller too, uh, his competition for center minutes is is exceptionally small for next year. Is it really just Willie Hearn and Gomez? That's all I've got on the books right now, unless they go little. If you get Cody Zeller up into that 26-minute range, he could be interesting. I don't know if I'd take the shot on it anyway. I don't think there's any upside there. So let's ignore him for the time being. I don't think we're taking any centers on this club unless we get this harebrained notion that Willie Hernan Gomez is starting, in which case, okay, fine. But I, I don't think that's... I think the odds of that happening are about 10%, maybe less. Okay, maybe Malik Monk is back, but he has a very point-heavy fantasy game, so you're looking at a more of a points league situation. What we're looking at here is, what's Terry Rozier going to be next year? Does his stuff change in any meaningful way? I, honestly, I don't see a big area where he's looking for improvement, maybe field goal percent. Devontae Graham, definitely you're looking at field goal percent. If there's a where, an area for improvement, that's the easiest one. That's the one where you're like, there's got to be some positive uh, movement here, or he's not going to survive at the NBA level. You can't make a career shooting 38% uh, from the field. That's, that's, that's an obscene number. So... There is upside with Devontae Graham. P.J. Washington, not a ton of upside because I don't see him getting hyper-aggressive on offense. Miles Bridges, there is some upside if he channels those, those moments where he got really aggressive. That's the key with Miles Bridges. We need the dude that's taking 15, 16 shots a game and not the guy who's taking 9 or 10. That's a big difference for him, scoring 20 versus 11. It's enormous. Usage is value. If he's out there getting usage, he can cover up for the lack on some of the other stuff. So I would take a shot on Bridges if he falls far enough. There's this weird 
You know, he was going in the 70s, 80s, 90s this year. He was not falling that far because, by the way, that one, we've talked about all of our wins and losses on this podcast as we've gone through these teams. That was a win for us because I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't take anybody on the Hornets this year, as you guys may recall. But now you're looking for a possible post-hype kind of scenario. And I'm not going to say he's going to be the next Jason Tatum, where everybody was hoping something would happen that didn't and then did the following year. But a lot of it with Tatum was about having the opportunity to be more aggressive in his team's offense. If we believe Miles Bridges can channel some of that aggression to games where he's taking 15, 16, 17, 18 shots a night, then he's worth a look. I don't think he's getting inside the top 70. That would take a lot of changes to his game. But top 90? Yeah, there's a world for that. And so he's a guy I'm looking to target outside the top 100, or as we've talked about before, once you get into that 100 range, you can do whatever the hell you want. Everybody's a crapshoot, so just go for it. If he's a guy you think has some opportunity to, to stick, and they're going to give him minutes, where the hell else are they going to put him? I don't think the, the, the Martins are, have, have horned in on a ton of time yet. And that is... Your Charlotte Hornets, my least favorite team in all of fantasy sports this season, but with an eye on the future. Quickly, lightning round here. Terry Rozier, probably a safe bet right around where he was this season. Devontae Graham, chance for upside with fear that he gets overdrafted because of that chance. P.J. Washington, chance to be better than this year through natural improvement of his basketball game but limited upside because he's the fourth fiddle. Miles Bridges should almost definitely be better than this year, but will his name and the prospect of giant minutes once again get him drafted too soon, or will he fall into that 100 to 120 range where we could at least take a shot at him? And outside of that, who cares? Cody Zeller probably going to be the starting center. He's got another year on his contract. They are better when he's on the floor. Can he shoot better than 68% at the free throw line? If he could have done it this year, he would have been creeping up into that top 120-130 range. He didn't. Only logged 23 minutes a game because he's extraordinarily brittle. But he's your, maybe I could chew up uh, a spot or two at the end of my bench with a high field goal percent center who wasn't nearly doing enough on the defensive side. And then beyond that, I'm not even venturing into that territory. The only other name that pops up that I think I'd even consider in a million years is Hernan Gomez, and we'd have to find out there's been a massive shakeup, and he's set to play you know, 25 minutes as a starter. Really don't see that happening. Hornets got to feel pretty good about not having Bismack Biombo. That frees up a lot of cash, by the way. I wonder if they'll do anything with that. Maybe they'll bring in a center. Maybe you'll actually see a center on this team that's worth using. So that could change things a bit as well. And would also, by the way, cut into the value we were talking about about with Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington, whatever that might be, not a lot, but a little, if someone comes in at the center spot that's a more proven rebounder. Because we were just talking about those two guys needing to rebound a little bit more to help increase their value in addition to the other areas of issue. Monday show, we'll break down episodes five and six of The Last Dance in our typical not-that-detailed manner. And I'll get you lesson number three from a season gone by. The lesson of the Charlotte Hornets is, boy, avoid youth. (laughs) We don't need that lesson on this podcast. 
don't buy the hype. I mean, this is a don't buy the hype team. Terry Rozier, Miles Bridges, these guys were all getting drafted pretty high, and Terry Rozier at least got near to his, so I'm not going to knock that one too much. But Miles Bridges was way overdrafted on potential that didn't get realized. And I think the, also, the other lesson with this team is Devontae Graham-related, and I'll try to remember it. If you see something happen on day one of the NBA season and something like, I mean, you could go back to that first game of the year with Devontae Graham, and it was immediate. It was immediate. There was never a moment that was like, this guy needed to work his way into a spot. On the first day, he played 27 minutes and scored 23 points with eight assists. He shot seven out of nine, and I think I convinced myself, well, he's not going to shoot seven out of nine every game. Boy, did he not. But he certainly got opportunity, and he played his way into additional opportunity. When something crazy like that happens on the first day, sometimes you got to take notice. And I didn't. So lesson learned on Devontae Graham, but a couple of wins on the other stuff by avoiding headaches and uh, just not having to think about this team for long stretches. I felt a lot better about life. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hopefully we'll have some more um, barely, we'll call it the least possible optimistic, but, uh, you know, if you're looking at the... If you're looking at the sliding scale, and to the left is pessimism and the right is optimism, we're like one paper-thin margin on the optimism side of the midpoint with some of the news that came out today uh, related to just cities and counties and states and, and how they view the next roughly two months, I think. We're starting to, to turn a little bit of a corner. So I, I don't know. We may not have anything by Monday. These days all feel so long, but they are in, in reality quite short. Be safe, as per usual, Monday again, uh, lesson number three. Hope you'll join us for that one. I'm Dan Vesperus. Thanks again to Josh Millman for yesterday's pod. Apologies on the technical issue one more time. We'll talk to you on Monday. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.